Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And the year is 2022, and lots of shit is different. The birth rate is down. COVID has mutated. Fish can talk. But rather than dive headfirst into the shallow waters of headlines, I thought this would be a good occasion for, for a thin retrospective of the past year. A retrospective that focuses on two things in particular. And both of those things are Louis Menand. Louis Menand is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's a professor at Harvard. And when I sat on my corner stool at Batch Gastro Pub the other night, a couple nights before New Year's Eve, I, I started skimming through my Goodreads account to see what are the books that I had read this year, which are the ones that had the most lasting effect on me. And Louis Menand's most recent book, The Free World, is up there at the top. The Free World was so decidedly and resoundingly up there at the top of the list of the most influential books I read this year that as soon as I was finished with it, I reached out to Louis Menand, told him that I adored the book. I asked him if he would join me for an interview, and he said he would. Cheers! So I dove back into the book and I read it really fucking hard and I drew up some questions and we had a very pleasant interview through Zoom and I was incredibly grateful to him. That happened five months ago. And the reason I didn't post the interview until now, the reason I didn't even listen to the interview until now is because I was convinced at the time that I had just fucked it up, like irreparably, that the sound quality was bad, that my questions were bad, that this dude was just not very pleased to be here. And most of those things were not true. Like once Luminand popped up on my Zoom screen, I was like, whoa, what a fucking, this is a frightening man which is totally not the case. You can hop onto YouTube or type his name into Spotify and you'll find dozens of examples of Louis Menand being super chill, super patient, super accommodating. What I did, and the reason I feel like this is something to reflect on going into the new year, is I just completely psyched myself out about this conversation. The main reason I think I did psych myself out is because Louis Menand's latest book, which again is called The Free World, and I so passionately recommend it, it is one of the few books I've read in my life where, like, I genuinely felt like a different person on the other side of it. Felt like I went into it as one person and came out of it as somebody else. And that sounds so romantic and so fucking flighty and hoity-toity, but it is true. And some of it might have to do with the fact that I read it at a formative time. I, I mentioned to Manand in the course of our interview, that my favorite character in this book, which is a sprawling history of, like, the development of Western art and ideas during the Cold War, I told him that my favorite character in the book was this dude in the footnotes, because that is the only part of this otherwise very lean, very conversational book where Menand kind of geeks out. He does these Montgomery Burns kinds of finger steeples, and he dishes Beatles trivia, and Jean-Paul Sartre trivia, and Elvis trivia. Geek shit. Like, happy, exuberant geek shit. The book is highbrow, the book is challenging, but the fucking narrator is having a great time, and the narrator's exuberance and the narrator's momentum proves contagious, it proves seductive, so that even when you're reading something that's super formidable, and you're like, fuck, I don't think I understand these words, he kind of draws you along. 
as I've mentioned in the past, I, I, I'm the kind of reader who gets intimidated whenever someone brings up words like totalitarianism, and or they start discussing kind of like factional political jargon, and there is a good amount of that in the early part of this book, but whenever I was reading those sections, I felt as though I was being led through a spooky intellectual forest by a guy in a tie-dye shirt. But as I mentioned a moment ago, another part of why the free world rang my bell so hard is because I was like in the trenches working on a book of my own at the time that I read this, and in working on my own book I felt that I was having to confront certain things about myself and my own conception of how the world works. The kind of art project that feels, as you're working on it, like it's it's just, it's manifesting your, your own, I don't know, what it's doing is sort of metaphorically depicting a turn that you are making in your own life, intellectually or in your day-to-day, -day, romantically, aesthetically, whatever. And while I was experiencing that, I read this book, The Free World, in which Louis Menand is giving you, again and again, these chapter-length portraits of Hannah Arendt, Susan Sontag, James Baldwin, Jackson Pollock, The Beatles, Elvis, Andy Warhol. He's giving you these portraits of artists and intellectuals as people, as as people with, you know, traumas and anxieties and ambitions in these chapters, they find themselves at critical moments of intellectual or artistic change, intellectual and artistic turning. And it's not, part of it is that they are being swept along a curve by their historical moment, but they are navigating that turn, that curve in such a way that they are also influencing the historical moment that is changing them. I, I think the most interesting chapter in this case is his chapter on rock and roll in which he shows that yes it is a crit he's depicting a critical moment in the change of elvis and in the change of the beatles but he's also showing that america itself was in a experiencing a kind of pubescent turning point in the middle of the century we're going to hear from louis menand about his like mind-fuckingly expansive history of art in the cold war and another thing we're going to do you and me together Going into 2022 is we are going to, number one, we are going to read expansively. We're going to watch off the beaten path kinds of shit. We're going to consume art that is challenging. The kind of stuff that Manon talks about in this book. And then number two, we're going to not indulge the impulse to assume that we fucked something up or made a bad impression on somebody. We're going to try to not overthink social performances. A few years ago, I worked as a research assistant for a ghostwriter, and it was one of the most formative experiences of my life because it taught me that while nothing on earth makes me happier than writing, it's also the case, the other side of that coin is like, nothing on earth makes me more miserable than writing other people's shit. Like, shit that doesn't interest me at all, and that these people are gonna pass off as their own work, it's absolutely fucking soul-crushing. But one of the things I had to write, I had to write a blog post while working for this ghostwriter about the phenomenon of self-talk. Self-talk, negative self-talk is this thing to which nervous people are prone, myself included, where, for instance, let's say you go to a cocktail party. It's a fancy affair, and while you're here, you get the sense that everyone in this room is like a dignified professional, they listen to Mozart, their hair stays presentable during sex, 
They eat pizza with spoons, just refined. Like, you don't really belong here. And so you float around the room, you schmooze a bit, you, you step into a, let's say you step into a circle where people are talking in a knowledgeable way about infrastructure. And then at one point they look at you to get your opinion and they're like, oh, oh so, you stranger, what is your, what is your opinion about infrastructure? And you don't know anything about infrastructure, so then you get nervous and you're like, well, I don't know, you know, J Jack Nicholson directed a sequel to Chinatown that nobody talks about. And then everyone just kind of clams up on your behalf, like they are vicariously embarrassed. And then suddenly you're totally withdrawn from the situation. You go completely into your mind and you're like, oh fuck, what have I done? Why did I bring up the two Jakes? Why do I always bring up the two Jakes? So then you go home and you think, fuck, fuck, I fucked it up so bad. Everyone hates me there. Well, what I did some research on, and what I ended up writing about for a blog post back when I back when I worked for that ghostwriter, and incidentally, this is neither here nor there, but there was an encounter once with one of the clients for the ghostwriter. He was writing a short story, and in this short story, there's a, a thing where, like, there's a middle-aged man, and he's experiencing, like, three days of sexual tension with, a, like, a 12-year-old boy. And so my task was I had to read this, and I had to sort of give feedback. And so I wrote some feedback to the author, and I was like, so... Hey, so the story is very well written, but a little uncomfortable by the sexual tension between between the middle-aged narrator and this young boy. And so I wrote that in an email, and then like three days later, the author sent me a text, and the text just said, I didn't realize you were a Republican. And to this day, like six or seven years later, it is the text that I have like most most pondered. But anyways, so I'm working for this ghostwriter in a research capacity, and I've got to do a blog post about negative self-talk. And I came across this interview with a psychologist who was like, listen, if you think that the person you just met at a dinner party walked away from that encounter, went home, and thought about you, then you are absolutely delusional. To think that you have made However, whether good or bad, to imagine that you have made such an impression as to displace a person's normal daily thoughts is kind of crazy. And it's kind of self-aggrandizing. Everyone in every situation is self-conscious. Everyone is wearing a mask. Everyone is just trying to have a nice time without looking like a fool. Anyway, my point is, I don't think Louis Menand hates me anymore. Let, as I was convinced that he did after this conversation, and the fact that I let that get in the way. The fact that I allowed it to get in the way of what I originally set out to do, which was just draw attention to this fantastic, fantastic book. I really fucking resent my 2021 self, who let his insecurities get in the way of doing what he set out to do. So, join me in listening to this interview and resolving not to do shit like that in 2022. Also, do yourself a favor, Check out Louis Menon's book, The Free World. It is, I, I think you might end up agreeing with me that it is kind of life-changing, especially if you're a creative sort. So here it is, Louis Menon, back in August, talking about his new-ish book, The Free World. And I was on your Isaiah Berlin section where you mentioned parenthetically that you were commending him, kind of like, that he agreed to take on the Marx book because uh -huh. he saw it as an opportunity to finally sit down and read about Marx. Yeah. And you said that's always a good opportunity. But this book is so huge and it traverses so many topics. Am I am I right in imagining that you embarked with a with a narrower focus and it kind of sprawled into something? Because it does kind of feel like a life's work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't like to start things with a very clear idea of what I'm going to say because <clears throat> if you 
I think if you have a thesis that you've decided on before you've really started studying the topic, you're you're confining yourself. It inhibits your creativity. So I don't make outlines or anything like that. I just try to start on page one and see how the story develops. And then as the story develops, I begin to see what, what's going on. So in this, that's true in this case, too. I would say that when I started it, which was a long time ago, I thought there'd be a lot more about the Cold War in it. And then I found that the Cold War actually is not a great explanatory factor in what people were writing and creating and thinking. It's there, of course. But it's not as though everything's being driven by that circumstance. There's many other things going on independently of the Cold War. So, so that was a little bit of a surprise. But I would have, if I had started with the thesis that it can explain the intellectual and cultural history of this period by looking through the lens of the Cold War, I would have limited what I was able to write. Um, and the other thing, which is related to that, that I started, started with or started imagining the book with was this idea that the CIA, which did play a role in covert funding of a lot of supposedly independent organizations, also was a kind of puppet master of the events of the period. And I found that that's really not true either. So that opened up the possibilities for taking on all kinds of different subjects because I wasn't being confined by trying to explain them in those particular contexts. Um, and then just as a matter of when you're writing something, um, you know, the first chapter is sort of stretching the canvas. You know, you just sort of try to see what the scale of the project is going to look like based on how much you say, what you say in the first pages. And I remember when I finished the first chapter, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be epic because it, it just was going to require getting into essentially 18 different subjects in depth and then trying to string them all together. So it was a pretty ridiculously ambitious undertaking. But I did it partly for the reason that you intuited from that comment about Berlin's book on Marx, which is that I wanted to learn about John Cage and you know all these people who I didn't really know very much about when I started out. And that so it was a huge education for me, as, you know, as book writing is for people. Yeah, and, and in writing about people like John Cage and to an extent people like Pollock, you kind of start off by giving them a benefit of the doubt that I'm, I think a lot of people don't, like in kind of deciding who are the artists among whom I'm going to divide my time and my attention. It's very easy to dismiss them offhand as being, you know, hobby interests yeah. or fads. And um, do you see that in your students? Are your students more willing to give time to things? Because as you teach college students, but then when your books come out, you engage with a different audience, which I think might generally be older. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And I, I guess you get to see <laughs> well, that you get to see the contrast between how your students take in these narratives and how an older crowd does. And do you find that people, you know, I don't know, fancy you a sucker for the for the credit that you give to Pollock or Cage? Yeah. Well, no. I mean. Um, I find with college students, at least now, they don't know anything about Pollock and Cage, really. And they're fascinated to learn that there's something going on there that they would never have understood if I had explained what the intentions of those works were. What, what was the painting about? What was this silent piece for piano about? They don't know that. They couldn't tell you that. So they're actually quite interested, just intellectually, in what these people were up to. Um, so I, I don't find it's difficult to sell it to them. The one figure 
college students just don't really like is Jack Kerouac. I don't quite know why that is, but they just they never don't really respond to that book. I think it's a beautiful book, but they don't. But otherwise, they're interested in the sort of theoretical questions about what is art, what is music, you know, what is cinema, the stuff that people in that period were obsessed with. So it's it's so remote to them that it's interesting, you know, just historically. And then they find there's a, actually a lot to think about and what's is what, what was happening then. So I don't, I don't find it's tough for them. Of course, I taught using this material for the last maybe five or six years. You know, it was pretty successful to undergraduates. Um, so I don't see that. Uh, the figures I chose to write about are all very famous people. So, you know, I was looking, as I say, at the headliners, Pollock, you know, Susan Sontag, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. I mean, these are, you know, these are huge towering figures in the period. And then they have a they're still recognizable today. Everybody's heard of Jackson Pollock and Jean-Paul Sartre. So those are the people I chose to write about. And there's a lot of more minor figures in the book because they're part of the scene that these people operated in. But I focus on the sort of the big names. Um, I could have done, so partway through, I thought I should, I should have done a revisionist history of this period, which I talk about all the unknown people, you know, painters and poets and so on, but I didn't do that. I was I was surprised and enchanted kind of by the frequency with which you digress so engagingly into you digress away from someone as interesting as Hannah Arendt or Sartre or Orwell or later on Mailer and Pollock to talk about a complete someone I've never heard of and they're just as interesting. Yeah, so that's the idea. It's just, it's very populated with both famous people and then people that have kind of disappeared. Um, and you know that's what you only learn that by doing the research and sort of figuring out who's there on the ground when these famous people are doing their thing. And in speaking of those people who kind of disappear, um, one of the things that I found so delightful about the book is, um, you know, in, in trying to sort of explore film independently, for instance, I, I looked at sort of the towering figures and one of them was Antonioni. And so I watched sort of the major Antonioni movies. I found them totally insufferable, but I found the criticism fascinating. Yeah. And you cover so many artists here, all of their works, maybe there will be a boost with you know the age of digital books when these things can be stored without occupying too much yeah. physical space. Not all these works are going to endure. And I wonder in your teaching of students, are, are there some major artists and political thinkers where it's enough just to discuss them and what their ideas were rather than prompting your students or, or even the casual reader to actually engage with those works because they're simply too arduous or not quite worth it? No, when I teach it, I make the students engage with the work. If there's a movie, they're supposed to watch the movie. Um, no, you think you should, I mean, you should have some idea of what the experience is. Because often, as I say, there's a big gap between what how you experience it, and then when you learn about what's really going on, how you understand it later on. The silent piece is a great example of that. Most people don't know how to listen to that. They don't know why, what they're listening to. But when you understand what Cage's intention was, you get, you know, you understand what your experience is supposed to be like. You still might not enjoy it, but at least, at least you get it. Um, and that, that's true. That's true of a lot of the avant-garde stuff in the period. But no, I think you should, you should try it um, and look at it. I tried to look at all the art if I could um, in museums and stuff, uh, see what it was like. Well, I'm thinking, for instance, of sort of Hannah Arendt's entire body of work, and in her in that chapter, you're talking about sort of the development of her body of work and how her first major book about totalitarianism, she kind of drifted away from that, her ideas evolved, and um, that was what I was thinking about, you know, should you take 
should you confront these people in their entirety, confront their entire body? Oh, yeah. So I don't do that, really. So it's true in case of Hannah Arendt, the focus of the chapter is really on that book. But I do talk a little bit about The Human Condition, which is our next book, and then a little bit about the Eichmann book. But I don't try to summarize her whole body of thought because I'm really interested in the book that made a difference to people. That was the first book. Um, and that's true of most of these figures. For example, Pollock, you know, in his career, the drip paintings only occupy about a three-year period. Did them all in the, between 1947 and 1950. There's a lot of earlier Pollock, which I don't talk about because it's not, it's not interesting in the same way. Elvis Presley, it's basically three years when he sort of king of rock and roll. So it's, it's pretty short amount of, Andy Warhol, it's a pretty short amount of time, I think generally in cultural history, that a person who becomes monumental, because everybody knows about this person, um, is flourishing, is sort of doing their thing at the top of their game. And then, you know, they often go on to have very long careers after that. Baldwin's another example where they're just less important because other things have come on the scene. So I'm trying to focus on that pretty narrow period, same time giving a reader a sense of what the career looks like. Right. And in talking about those windows and how sometimes they go on to have a great career afterwards, I remember um, Norman Mailer and Harold Bloom having a squabbling match through the press where Harold Bloom said Norman Mailer's greatest invention was Norman Mailer. And Mailer said, no, that's Harold Bloom is talking about himself. The greatest thing he ever did was invent Harold Bloom. There are many instances where it seems like these figures that you're talking about, these generators of great art and ideas, it seems the, the persona is inextricable from the work. And I understand that that's a big part of your approach to teaching in general. That, I mean, do you think that Jackson Pollock's mural is as powerful if you don't have in your mind? I, I think you quoted some, I don't know if it was your line or if someone else is saying you wouldn't be wrong to say that it looks like he pissed on the canvas. He, that he, um, yeah. Do you think that the work is as powerful if you don't have in your mind the image of this tormented alcoholic hovering over his barn floor? Yeah. So in the case of Pollock, I think the persona is a distraction from the work because it's it's induced people to interpret the drip paintings, abstract work as some kind of macho aesthetic or he's attacking the canvas or something, or it represents the turmoil of his unconscious. I just think that's all crap. I mean, that's just not what the paintings are about at all. So I think in that case, in Pollock's case, his reputation is, has not done him any good. He was sick. He had a medical condition. He was an alcoholic. He wasn't a wild man. He just would get drunk and then he'd behave really badly. But it was a, it was a medical condition, and I just think he gets he gets no understanding from people because they have inherited this image of him. Um, whereas a person like Warhol, who also has a kind of slightly contrived persona, that's not really who he was. It helps him a little bit, I think, in terms of making his work seem interesting because he seems like it's very complicated character. Again, I think the persona, the reputation is not really accurate at all about him or Susan Sontag, a lot of these people. But it is part, it is part of the package, there's no question about it. And that's really true of Mailer. You know, he wanted it to be part of the package. He wanted people to think, oh, Monroe Mailer is this really interesting guy, does these crazy things. Um, that, you know, that draws attention to what he's writing. So, yeah, a lot of them are like that. Rauschenberg, I think, was like that, but not all of them. Yeah, I remember when, uh, is it Benjamin Mosher who did the most recent biography yeah. of? I remember it seemed in, throughout his publicity tour, very little was ever asked of the work, of Sontag's work. It was uh, about 
her oh. romances, her yeah. um, she's, was she. Yeah, she's fascinating. I mean, and, and she's complicated. They're all pretty complicated. Baldwin's incredibly complicated. Yeah. So I, I, so I, first of all, believe in biography as a tool of doing cultural history because you want to know the life history of the person who creates this thing. That life history intersects with a particular historical moment uh, in the history of art or the history of thought. And you have to kind of figure out what, what that moment is and how it was possible for the person to do what they did when they did it. But it's a particular person who's doing it. Um, and I think you want to take that into account. So I, so I do think biography uh, is, is an important ingredient of understanding what people are doing. And it does seem like, yes, like a, like a capital B belief in biography because it is your, your book is so restrained. And you were talking about Kerouac a moment ago and the common misconception that he was just kind of indulging himself that the stream this this manuscript was complete stream of consciousness he was just letting it all on un, unspool and i'm wondering because i imagine that a lot of the figures that you're writing about or at least a few were very influential when you yourself were taking shape there's also a lot of reverence for the university atmosphere in this book <laughs> as a place of intellectual formation character yeah. development That's and cool. i'm wondering how you resisted maybe that that caricaturish Kerouacian impulse to maybe, I'd like to riff about these things yeah. as opposed to just biography and and presenting information. Were there figures about whom you had to rein your, rein yourself in from just expounding either in frustration or reverence? Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good perception. Yeah, I I don't want to judge. I want the reader to judge. So I'm just telling you this is what I think happened. This is what I think this person was. This is I think what they were trying to do. And you decide if you think it's worthwhile or not, or you approve of the person or not. It's not up to me. Like Baldwin, you know, there's a lot of tricky things in Baldwin's career that are a little hard to understand, um, and you have to decide what you think of him. Is he an opportunist? You know, is he a, um, was he uh, driven by principle? Um, you know, it's he's complicated. They're all complicated, but I don't judge. The same thing's true of the period as a whole. I don't have a kind of judgment on the Cold War. I can tell you what I think personally, but it's not. My purpose as a writer. I yeah, I was just in my most recent interview last week was with W. H. Brands or H. W. Brands about his um his recent biography of Reagan, and um I'd had a couple friends who had seen me carrying the book around and asking me at the end what I thought, and I thought I don't really know. And I I, I interviewed Alter about his Jimmy Carter book, and yeah, at the end, I my intention is to come out of it with a rounded perspective and the ability to say okay, he was adept at his job, he was. He was yeah. ill-equipped, and I can't. It just gets harder and harder the more you know, it seems. Yeah, you you want to help readers think, but you don't want to tell them what to think. I don't like being told what to think. Right. Well, I was wondering where your head was when this was over, because I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it took you about a decade um, to work on this book, and I'm wonder I imagine that when you were done with it in the year between completion and publication, I imagine you kind of as like a man in the eye of the storm, like between projects, yeah. a weird silence. And you mentioned to Gil Roth on his podcast that you felt yourself, I don't know if this is still the case, I'd be interested to know, that you felt yourself kind of being inexorably pulled toward a book on Vietnam. Yeah. But otherwise, I just want to know what was your daily life like when you did not, when suddenly this 10-year project had ended? And it, I, yeah, what, it, yeah, uh, what happened yeah. to you? I haven't had postpartum yet. Um, that's because a lot went into the post-production part of this particular book. So an earlier book I wrote, The Metaphysical Club, we did nothing to it really, just went into print. But this book required a lot of work. We had, first of all, we had to get the images, which was a big problem. Um, 
and then we had to pick a jacket image, and then we had to cut a lot. So I cut about seventy-five thousand words, which sounds like it's like a whole book, but it was pretty easy to cut. So we had to make it manageable, length manageable, uh, which I think it just barely is. It's a little long, but it can't, I can't make it much shorter. So that took a long time. Um, and then, you know, then there was the launch. So the launch, you know, you're doing a lot of these things uh, and, uh, you know, you're excited about how the book is doing and so on. So, uh, so I've been, you know, it's not that I haven't been busy with the book. I was also teaching last year and I um, write for the magazine, so I have to do those pieces. So I, was, I kept myself busy. But now I have some time off from teaching, uh, which I haven't had in a long time. So I'm going to think I'm going to try to write a book about Vietnam. I mean, I don't have a publisher yet, so I need to, you know, write a proposal and everything. But um, that would be a sequel. So the Vietnam book would be from 1965 to 1973, because those were the years that we were involved militarily. The war, of course, the whole war took 30 years, but we were there for eight. And that was a very, I believe, transformative time for the United States. And I'm just going to try to explain what that was all about if I can. So be ideally a much, much shorter book. Somewhat more, somewhat more personal. Um, it will have, it'll have a lot of characters because I think that's what makes them fun to read, but I won't have as many characters as this book does. Um, yeah, I was a little em embarrassed in, in reading your book that I didn't know what you were describing as maybe the, the bloodiest part of the conflict just kind of wasn't covered, that it happened after Americans left. Oh, the war with China, yeah. Yeah, um, which, of, of which I knew nothing. But um, you, you talk about that robust cast of characters, and um, there was a thing that kept coming to mind of, like, comic books, and um, splash pages in particular, where... The whole centerfold is Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman all together in one panel. It's you know fanfare, because the university keeps coming up as a great, not so much in the early 20th century part, but later on, yeah. and you have all these figures who, to someone whose mind is taking shape, in university, they're kind of mythic figures and almost like superheroes, and then you see that Hannah Arendt is writing a piece that is being critiqued by David Reif whose work is being, you know, ghostwritten by Susan Sontag, who's having a sit-in with uh, Baldwin and Mailer, and there's something exuberant in the footnotes where you, you make a remark like, from the department of whatever, uninteresting facts, um, or irrelevant facts, where I thought I detected some kind of glee in connecting and in, in cramming all these superheroes into one panel. Um, and those were the parts where I thought, and now I'm thinking as we talk that I might have had the wrong impression, that there were many, especially mid-century figures, 60s figures, where like those were the chapters where you were reining it in because maybe you were having a good time and riffing a bit. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to do too much on the 60s because I feel that's a period that's been written about endlessly. So there's a lot of obviously 60s things that I don't, that are not in a book. Um, I really wanted to write about the 40s and 50s, so that's what most of it is. Um, and then when you get to the 60s, I just wanted to get you to 65, and then the story turns a page. Um, in terms of the characters appearing in the same panel, um, I didn't plan that. It, it's just when you get to that part of the story, suddenly somebody from an earlier chapter pops up again, and so you put them in. So they do they do tend to do that, and I, I hope readers get a sense of pleasure when they see that happening. But it wasn't as though I 
plan too far ahead with that. Just that's the way it worked. It's funny about certain periods. This is one of them. And it was also true of the period I wrote about in the Metaphysical Club, which is late 19th century, basically academic world. It's a pretty small number of people, and they all kind of know each other. Um, it's odd, but uh, it seems to be the case. And that it, it, they, you can, just by tracking those people, you can get a pretty full sense of what's going on, at least in at one level of culture, uh, which is more or less a highbrow level. Uh, it's not, there just aren't that many people. It's different today, actually, where you couldn't name 10 people who were important, you know. Um, it's just, a, the, our world's a little flatter than that world was. But in that world, there's these people who were iconic figures. They just keep, they just keep, as long as they're around, they just keep coming back. Um, and that's convenient for an historian. Right, and you mentioned not knowing the figures of today like not being able to pick 10 who are major figures in the art world and they overlap I biographically. Think yeah, I think yeah but, but I remember David Remnick saying in an interview somewhere that the reason he dispatches a writer to a trap music festival is because he considers it a blight on the New Yorker's past that uh, jazz wasn't being taken seriously uh, in, in the mid-century. And um, That's not true, I, but anyway, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, jazz critic Whitney Balliot. He's a great jazz critic, so... I mean, I think what the Yorker didn't do is in the goings-on section, which is the sort of calendar in the front, um, they they often didn't talk about jazz dates. It just isn't true they didn't have jazz writers. Okay. Well, I was wondering just, like, how does one have their feelers out in such a way as to detect yeah. when, when something is or isn't a fad? Because as you point out, the people who were saying rock and roll was a fad were not wrong immediately. Right <laughs> they, that it almost it almost did become a fad. Yeah, it would have been a fad, but for this, that, and the other thing happened, and then it became this, you know, as I say, cultural winner. So that that's the, one of the amazing things about Susan Sontag is she could, she had good antennae, and she could, at least at that period in her career, she could pick up on the trends, even when she really wasn't part of them. That's what's so interesting about Against Interpretation, where she talks about an erotics of interpretation. She was not a very erotic person just in terms of her response to things. She was a very super intellectual person. And um, and yet she could see that that's where things were going, that people were responding in non-intellectual ways to avant-garde art, movies, and so on. And so she picked up on that. So it's hard to do that. Um, I quote Emerson at the beginning of that chapter, we cannot solve the times. It's very hard to, you're in the fishbowl, it's hard to see what's going on from inside the fishbowl. But she, but she was good at that. Um, and, and that often is what m makes it intellectual important is that they're a little bit out ahead of everybody else in terms of awareness of what's happening. And given that some context is needed for making sense of these things, do you kind of have a barrier in your mind of like, I, I, I kind of don't have interest in writing about something post-1990 or 85 where there isn't enough context to really know, to really get in deep with it. Well, you, you could, you'd have to work it up. So for me anyway, I was born in 1952, I kind of stopped paying attention to everything around 1980 <laughs> when MTV started. And uh, just, it's just because of, I was doing other things, I was teaching, you know, I was writing books and I, you know, stuff. So I just wasn't that interested in it to begin with at that point in my life. And then I lost track of everything. So I would say I probably couldn't name more than 10 pop bands since 1980. I just, you know, I didn't listen to that music. But before that, I knew all the pop bands. I listened to all the music. I had all the records. Um, 
I knew all the movies. I don't know all the movies anymore. So, so it would be a lot of work for me to write anything after 1980, just because it wasn't part of my, I could do it, but it would be like writing about something that took place in the 1820s. I'd have to go to the, go to the library. So I think it's interesting, but I don't know what, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have an idea about what to do with it. I could write a book on the seventies, I feel, cause I do, I do it. I don't particularly like that decade, but I sort of know what was going on. After that, I don't really know what's going on anymore. And with this book on Vietnam, it, it, you made a remark, made it sound like um, in the book you describe Isaiah Berlin's sort of more personal text that he wrote toward the end of his life in which he recounts that kind of romantic encounter. Um, is that where suddenly you would switch toward a more personal mode? Well, I would write a little more personally just because, um, you know, I was subject to the draft and, um, uh, and because my parents were very political people. And they were very anti-war, um, and I wasn't 100% anti-war. Uh, oddly, I mean, I was against the war as most 18-year-old men were, but I was ambivalent about it. Um, and so, part of writing the book is to kind of come to terms with that. So, it would be somewhat. If I was strictly an anti-war person, my personal experiences would not be interesting. But the fact that I was ambivalent about the war a little bit makes makes it a little more interesting because I can kind of try to express what that felt like at that time. Um, and then I also want to go to Vietnam, which I've never been to, because I, I feel guilty that I never went, because three million people in my generation went there. Um, so I feel I feel I should go and see what, what happened. Um, so so in that sense, it'll be more personal, but it won't be biographical or autobiographical. Yeah, people are not that interested in me. I'm not that interesting. Well, as some, I have a feeling you could make it so. Um, as, as someone who who looks with such such a scrupulous eye at so much of this art, I'm wondering what is your unwinding stuff, um, or do you come across more recent art when you're hanging out, or like in between projects, or like you say, you're going to have a break from teaching soon, and I imagine jump right into the Vietnam book. Like, do you ever watch or read something recent and think, oh, I see this, I see a trend going on? I, so when I finished, so when I was working on the book and teaching and everything, I didn't have time to read contemporary fiction. But when I finished the book and then we were, of course, more or less locked down, I did start to read some contemporary fiction that I'd missed. Uh, so I read Elena Ferrante, Canal um, um, Scarred, uh, some stuff like that. And um, so that, you know, I was interested to see what was going on, what people were talking about that I hadn't read because I was too busy doing the other stuff. So yeah, I, I'm interested in what's. It's not that I'm not don't care about it. It's just that I don't feel up on it. Okay. And is your reading of this modern stuff kind of haunted by the the time period in which you were just enmeshed and you see vestiges uh, of? No, I wouldn't say that. Not really. No. Okay. I mean, I don't experience it that way. I'm also just trying to read it for pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Try not yeah, to it makes sense. Because I have to write something about it. And and what was your take on Knazgard? Did you? Enjoy I, I only read the first volume. I confess, but I. Okay. Um, it's a case where I'd heard so much about it that I kind of knew it was like I, it was like, um, it was like a spoiler. I sort of knew what it was going to be like before I read it. That was exactly like I was had read it was going to be like. Um, I thought it was sort of fascinating thing to try to do. I didn't feel inspired to read the other four volumes, though I probably should. So that was my take on that. Elena Ferrante. I thought it was great, and I was uh, a little surprised because 
friends who had read it thought that, oh, well, the writing's not that good and so on, or it's chick or something. I didn't feel that. I thought it was quite a brilliant book. Um, it helped that I had seen the show of My Brilliant Friend before, the television adaptation. Um, and then her translator was my editor at The New Yorker, Ann Goldstein, so that tickled me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've reached the end of the half hour. Thank you so much for recording me your time, man. I really appreciate it. And I love the book. And I think it's going to be one of the, I think it will have legs as one of the sort of monumental sort of identity shaping texts that you so often refer to young people reading in the course of this book. Um, it's really remarkable and congrats on it. Thank you so much. Listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more of it, you can of course check out our back catalog, but you can also support the show by becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com forward slash thousand movie project, or if you just go to patreon.com, there's like a search bar. I don't know if you can find this show if you just type in my name, but definitely if you type in the name of the show, it will come up. All those donations get pulled up and they amount ultimately to like what I would earn at a shift every month, what I would earn in a shift of bartending, which means that every now and then I can take off a bartending shift and just churn out an episode. Apart from providing some financial breathing room. It's also super like encouraging to think that anyone is listening to this and they're like so interested and so supportive that they're going to like throw a few bucks at me. Like so for the for the financial well-being of the show, the regularity of the show and for the, the warming kernel of encouragement. You can again go to patreon.com, search for a Thousand Movie Project podcast and make a make a pledge. As usual, thank you for listening and thanks for your support.